1958 Brussels World's Fair was held at the height of the Cold War. Germany had been split in half 13 years earlier and would not reunify for another 32. The Korean War had ended five years ago with an armistice that persists to this day. The Second Indochina War had started three years ago when a scheduled referendum to unify Vietnam was not held. It would be 17 years before Vietnam was finally unified by force. A decade earlier, the Soviet Union built its first atomic bomb, developed in part through espionage for which Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed in the United States. By 1958, the U.S., the Soviet Union, and the United Kingdom all had successfully developed and tested thermonuclear bombs. Many were surprised, and some even frustrated, that atomic weapons had not been used in Korea, and the possibility of nuclear cast a long shadow over mid-century international politics. The focal point of the Brussels Expo 58 was the Atomia, a sleek futuristic exhibition space that modeled the structure of an iron crystal unit cell. The event opened with a call for world peace and for social and economic progress. Though Belgium had been invaded and occupied by the German army twice in less than half a century, the event expressed optimism about the possibilities of both international diplomacy and science. The Atomium still stands today and continues to be used for a variety of exhibitions and events. Near the Atomium, a section of Expo 58 devoted to the Belgian Congo included pavilions showcasing agriculture, trade, and mining in Congo, Rwanda, and Burundi. It also featured the most notorious example of a human zoo in the 20th century, purporting to display a typical Congolese village and to demonstrate the success of Belgium's so-called civilizing mission. Almost all of the uranium used in the atomic bombs that the United States Army Air Forces dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was mined from the Shikoloboe mine in the Belgian Congo under conditions of near-slave labor. Expo 58 also included the first ever international film poll, bringing together 117 film critics from 26 different nations. Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin received the most votes in the poll, narrowly beating out Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush. In an era of proxy wars, art was also a battlefield. Century, where we discuss films, literature, and culture in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. So today we're here to talk about undoubtedly the two greatest films of early Soviet cinema, 
Man with Movie Camera by Giga Vertov and Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin. And after watching some 20s silent movies from the United States and from Germany and now watching these, do you agree with me that the Soviets with amazingly little material to work with were just crushing everybody else like rotten grapes? It was so good. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh. Like, I started with Battleship Potemkin, mm-hmm. and then I did Man with a Movie Camera, and it was just, like, mind blown. Um, yeah. Man with Movie Camera is so avant-garde that, I mean, there are aspects of it that don't make as much sense unless you get into even a smart camera era, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear this as sometimes as man with a movie camera, the man with the movie camera. My understanding is that Russian tends not to use articles, so mm-hmm. yeah, that's why that is. But even Battleship Potemkin, I mean... That was good. They're both great films. Remember, Potemkin comes out in 1925, so that's the same year as The Big Parade. I mean, I think they're both great movies, but there's a lot more going on with Battleship Potemkin in terms of the theory of how montages work. And that's then pushed to the extreme with Man with the Movie Camera in a documentary format in 1929. And both of these are still to this day considered among the greatest films ever made. Like I said, we're talking about the Soviet Union in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, less than 10 years after completely reconstructing its whole society with not much in the way to work with in terms of materials, not much to work with in terms of wealth, just labor and technology and ingenuity and new ideas producing these two films, which are easily two of the greatest films ever made. Also, the soundtrack... For Man with Movie Camera, that one's hands down my favorite. Were you watching The Restoration? There's an extended introduction in French, you know, because when they'll usually have an introduction that's specific to The Restoration. The best restoration, like the most full restoration that we have is from a French print. The first set of intertitles are in French. Or they're not intertitles, I guess they're pre-titles, whatever you want to call them. Mine were in Russian. One would think that they would typically be in Russian. There's probably like a couple of minutes missing from the version you, you watched. I mean, we and we've gotten into this before and we've done other silent films where it's really difficult to find the prints and often you have a half-finished copy and stuff like that. That's a long-winded way of saying that they have different soundtracks often. I don't know if yours would have specifically had the same type of soundtrack as mine did. It felt like something I would find on Spotify and listen to right now. Really? That's interesting. I also listen to a lot of different weird stuff yeah (laughs) so there are detailed descriptions and parameters of what the soundtrack is supposed to sound like but that doesn't necessarily mean that it will always be exactly the same music but there will be certain things that are going to be common to every version of this like this should be like a little like clip clop clip clop clip clop clip clop clip clop in the background with a sort of bouncing music while the horses are trotting and you would have different sounds for the trolleys and stuff like that. And that's pretty typical of silent era films, especially something like this, which is concerned with creating a whole feel for everything. I do want to talk about it in great detail, but I don't want to get sidetracked from the real thing, which we need to do, which is introduce what in the fuck we're talking about in the first place, (laughs) because I was a history, I don't know what, I, I was fascinated by history even as early as high school, and you probably were as well. But let me just start with the basics of what did you, Rachel, as someone who would be going into a field of being a history teacher, what did you ever even hear about the Russian Revolution in high school? Were you taught that? Nothing at all? 
No, and I was doing reenactments in middle school. Like, I was really into history, but I never heard anything. They didn't cover the Russian Revolution whatsoever. No. I find that outrageous to the point of being intentional. Have you learned much about the Russian Revolution since then, or are we still working with a blank slate here? Blank slate. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> and but Future like, history teachers of Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they even offer classes that are specifically about the Russian Revolution because they talk about Civil War, African Americans since the Civil War, Revolutionary War, periods like Vietnam. Very it's very American period. focused. Yes. I mean, that's understandable, but I do, think that, I do think that it's important to learn the broad scope of history. Anna, did you learn anything about Russian history at all or the Russian Revolution in school? Not much. And if we did, it was just really a gloss over like everything else. And this is coming from a school that was really white and really rich too. So imagine, you know, the level of education I had in comparison to, you know, other people and it still wasn't even that great. Yeah. I mainly learned about the Russian Revolution from an AP Modern Euro course that I took in high school, which was taught by a fantastic man who happened to both be a football coach at my school and also, probably to many people's great surprise, a borderline communist himself. And I'm actually surprised you don't get that combination more because in a certain sense, football is the perfect communist sport where it's like, it, it, like the individual really does not matter whatsoever. No. Uh, though we've, we've changed this with our obsession with quarterbacks. Uh, whatever. I don't think he was literally a communist, but I think there that... There inklings. Well, he was definitely toward the left, which is not uncommon for history teachers. Oh, yeah. Though I would say in higher education, history is compared to something like American studies or area studies or even English, one of the more conservative humanities. But people in the outside world don't usually get that. Yeah. I mean, our history department here is pretty bang-slapping good. I'll put it this way. Historians as a profession, like the people who are scholars of history, especially in the United States, try and go out of their way to demonstrate their neutrality and their objectivity to an extent that for folks like myself in, say, the fill-in-the-blank studies fields, seems like you're bending over backward to like try and not take a stance on a thing. Because um, our whole history yeah. is so... Like, general world history is so political. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I learned about the Russian Revolution. Like, I got a lot of my, you know, European and ultimately world history from this AP Modern Euro class that I took as a sophomore in high school. And then later on, I studied Russian literature. Ooh. Well, not as seriously, obviously, as I've studied American literature, but I was fascinated by certain writers. But I took a semester in high school, like in my senior year, a sort of topics course, and one or two classes in college as well. I don't know any of the Russian language, but I've read a number of the major writers and studied them, and I have a fascination with that. And it seems like a lot of that comes out of the early 20th century. The Brits were very fascinated by 19th century Russian literature, and that, I don't know, it's almost like an Orientalist fascination has persisted, I think, in some areas. And part of that, I think, is because for a European nation, the history of Russia is so unique. And then, of course, with the Soviet revolution, it becomes even more unique and even more significant. But I think that in Russian history, we have a sort of, at least the way that I learned it. And you have to remember that I grew up immediately in the wake of the Cold War. In the 90s, <laughs> they, were, they were still teaching European history and world history and Russian history through that old Cold War lens. 
And that meant that a lot of our understanding of Russian history was sort of as a gaming out of all the sort of philosophical problems of freedom versus equality, of the power of the state versus the rights of the individual, and so on and so forth. And this is like the nuanced way of teaching it. And I think that still is actually sort of a problematic way of dichotomizing the lessons of the history of Russia. And yet, I know that the way that most people, well, most people probably in America don't learn it at all. And if they do, it's probably as a very weird, skewed version of like, this is what happens when there's too much government control. And it's a much more complex story than that, of course. But I mean, by the time that I was, you know, halfway through high school, I was already a very radical political <laughs> convictions. And so I always wanted to learn more about this revolution and about the culture that came from it. And you'll have to forgive me as I talk about some of these things. And as we did just minutes ago when we were talking about how incredible these films are. You will forgive me for sounding like a tanky. I'm really not trying to I'm really not trying to be a tanky. I'm not going to stand for the Soviet Union in every situation. But it is worth emphasizing that there is this sort of magical period in the very early Soviet Union before Stalin comes to power, before the death of Lenin, when obviously things are not perfect. Obviously there are a lot of horrors, but you know there are horrors all over the world in this time. But there are great dreams of what could happen, of what could be done, and amazing things happen. Between the turn of the century and the 1920s when these films were made, you know, Russia basically catapults itself from a more or less medieval society with a few pretensions to trying to join the modern world all the way to a fully industrialized civilization capable of producing fantastic movies with a true industry and something of a democratic form of governance. Now, I guess I have to put an emphasis on that something when we'll get into the details of that inevitably, but certainly more democratic than anything that existed under Tsarism. And then, you know, by the 1960s, they literally are, you know, launching robots onto the surface of Venus to take photographs of it. This is an incredible story. We can say that without having to pretend like Stalin wasn't a horrible person who did horrible things. We can emphasize that the people of the Soviet Union were unbelievably capable at rising to the demands of history and with their own hands overthrowing the shackles of their oppression and literally, you know, going from a nation of serfs to a nation that could destroy Nazi Germany and then go into fucking outer space. It is incredible. So the basics of understanding the history of Russia we'll be dealing with here are that I guess there are three revolutions that really matter. And I will direct listeners and even you yourself, if you have the time, which you probably don't, I'll direct listeners <laughs> to Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast series. The current season is on the Russian Revolution, and it's divided into two halves. He had to take a break to write a book about Lafayette because he's a scholar of revolutionary history at this point in his life, at least. And the first half of it, the series dealt with basically 19th century Russia, 
all the way up through the revolution of 1905. And the revolution of 1905 is, of course, includes the events dramatized in the film Battleship Potemkin. And then, of course, the second half of it is going to deal with the revolutions of 1917 and presumably the civil war that follows. And, and God knows how long it's going to take my Duncan to do that. It'll be probably a year or two. But it, it's a great series. I, I couldn't recommend it more. And literally every season of this series deals with a different revolution. So 1905 is the sort of first major Russian revolution. And basically it's a broad, unplanned uprising of the peasantry. And eventually, as we see in Battleship Potemkin, of sailors and the like. A lot of this is in response to the Russo-Japanese War. And a lot of this is sort of filtered through the going notions in the era of race. It was really a shock to the Russian aristocracy and to, honestly, all of Europe that the Japanese military could just clean the floor with Russia the way that they did. And that was pretty embarrassing. But, you know, you had all of these longstanding injustices that people were suffering under in and across the Russian Empire. And so it was an appropriate time for people to rise up and petition the government. And, you know, then while petitioning the government, the government sends out soldiers to shoot you, then perhaps doing things like rioting and trying to take over. In the case we see with Battleship Potemkin battleships, in other cases, you know, town halls and so on and so forth. It was a mass uprising, but it was a disorganized uprising. Now the Russian social Democratic Labor Party, or what would eventually come to be known as the Communist Party, was already in existence by this time and already had two factions, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. You've probably heard of the Bolsheviks, or if not, you will again. And this is, of course, Vladimir Lenin's party. They had been preaching revolution for a long time. And to be fair, though, there were oodles of different weird revolutionary parties in Europe in, in Russia specifically, there is no parliament still. You're still talking about an absolutist monarchy in the Tsar. And it's only in the revolution of 1905 that the Tsar grants the ability to have a Duma or what you know then becomes the Russian parliament. But it is really supposed to be just a purely advisory thing. The Tsar is not willing to give up any actual power. But it is in this revolution of 1905 that this happens. There are a couple of things that are, I think, worth highlighting about Russian history here. One is the way that religion is so tightly tied to the justification of the absolutist monarchy of the Tsar. And so the Orthodox Church is really important to the authority of the state. And we see a little bit of that in Battleship Potemkin. And it also helps to explain a little bit of why the Bolsheviks, why all of the communists in Russia are so viciously atheistic. The revolutionary movements that had preceded them in the 19th century were in some cases even more vicious and even more absolutist in their perspective. The, I think, most significant Russian revolutionary movement back in the 19th century was the nihilists, as they called themselves. 
And that is sort of a way of emphasizing how in a culture where the power of the state and the power of the economy and the power of the church are all sort of mashed down on each other into this one dense thing that's pushing on everybody, the only thing that really made sense for the sort of young punks of that era was to absolutely reject everything. And so nihilism for a long time was the sort of revolutionary banner in the 19th century. Now, it was, of course, later when Marxist ideas sort of developed out and became popularized in Russia that you had these more complex notions of what a revolution might look like. And you have splits between the, I'm not even going to know all these parties, but you have, you know, the, the socialists and the social democrats and the social revolutionaries and the Narodists and, and so on and so forth. We don't need to go into all that. Like I said, check out Mike Duncan's revolutions if you want all the hashing out of details there. But what it basically comes down to with the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, <laughs> the party that Lenin ends up leading to victory in 1917, is this idea that ends up being ultimately called Marxist-Leninism, which is a sort of particular interpretation of Marxism that says, yes, of course, the working class is going to rise up and throw off its shackles and overthrow the bourgeoisie. However, they need to be led by an organized cadre of professional revolutionaries. They need to have people show them the way to go. And what happens in 1905 is sort of like a much bigger version of what we saw last summer. Obviously, the politics are different. Obviously, a lot of the specific issues are different. But it's similar in that way that once the spark got lit, it went off. You know, the whole powder keg went up. It had been brewing for a long time. It went off. And there was no leadership, no political movement, no party, no person who stepped forward and was like, here, I'm in command of this revolution. Let's go. Instead, it was just a big powder keg that went off. And it was a big deal. But the people who would eventually call themselves communists later on, let's say Lenin and his crew <laughs> looked at it and were like, man, we botched this opportunity. They realized that they needed to have people on the ground, ready to go, ready to make it happen, make it work, and to channel that energy into something that would actually overthrow the government and actually take control and actually do Marxism, actually do socialism, do communism, do whatever. And instead, what you had is like this sort of weird flash in the pan. And you end up getting this Duma that doesn't really have any power. You end up having something that probably looks a little bit familiar to you guys right now. Once the Duma assembles, you then basically have the liberals and the radicals and the socialists and the communists all fighting with each other about what they're supposed to do. And then therefore nothing happens. So fast forward to 1917. Russia has a horrible, horrible go of the First World War. Massive casualties, huge bungling, like in every country in the First World War, huge bunglings. But you have these incredibly low levels of morale and the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party <laughs> has had 12 years to work on its infrastructure, to do its ground level organizing, to get people into every union it can, to get people into every place it can, to get its ideas out as best it can, to spread the notion that they are going to be the revolutionary party when the time comes, because the time is going to come. It's just a question of when. And what happens in 1917 is a double revolution. 
we've talked about how you have a breaking point in every one of these countries during the First World War. Less so in Britain, though, when we get to reading Pat Barker, we'll see how there were resistances to the war. But certainly in France, you have the 1917 French mutinies. In Germany, you ultimately do have a revolution that overthrows the old Kaiser. And briefly, there is a question of whether there's going to be a communist Germany. And you get actually a preview of the Second World War there almost right away, where you have paramilitary groups called the Freikorps fighting in the streets with communists who wanted to make parts of Germany Soviet, basically. And we've talked about how, you know, shittily the Italian war was run. See, there's a breaking point for every nation in this war that sticks in it long enough and does bad enough. And it's no different for Russia. The difference, however, is that there is also a political breaking point. And a lot of this is that, as I mentioned earlier, Russia is still in many ways a sort of medieval nation. It's very much an agrarian peasant economy. It has very medieval notions of how politics are supposed to operate. And ultimately what happens is you have an abdication of the Tsar in March of 1917. And at that point, that's what we would call a liberal revolution occurs. That Duma, which had more or less once been a merely advisory body, now is going to go to being an actual government. And what you have is then a Russian provisional government, which is going to be uh, beset by the same problems that we could imagine any government in such situations would be beset by, not least of which is the liberals and the socialists and the radicals and the communists all arguing with each other about what to do while the Germans are killing Russian soldiers left and right. Back in the United States as this happens, and you know, in places like Britain when this happens, it's considered like, oh, well, this is great. Finally, we don't have this embarrassing autocracy on our team, and we can say that we're the ones who are in favor of democracy and all that. But it doesn't help with running the war. The whole thing about being in a situation where you might have a war that's making the world safe for democracy, as Wilson would say, or perhaps making the world safe for capitalism, as a communist might say, is that you'd have to keep fighting the war. And yet uh, part of the problem was that Russia was not doing a very good job of fighting this war. So maybe they should have just given up. And this is in the same period of time in which Lenin is advocating what he called revolutionary defeatism. Let's just lose the war and win the revolution. Let the state crumble. Instead, what ends up happening is through a number of weird maneuvers that I don't want to bother getting into, but some of them very clever and some of them very stupid, and a lot of them coming down to the fact that the vanilla libs of this world are not really very much into power politics. Lenin more or less just locks out the provisional government and says, we're taking this shit over. And that is what's called the October Revolution. Now, it helps that a shitload of the sailors and soldiers on the front line are communists too by now. A lot of that has to do with the fact that there's a draft army and a lot of this has to do with the fact that, like I said, they'd had 12 years to infiltrate into everywhere. And more or less everything was crumbling anyway. It was total chaos. And one might say that if he hadn't had the goods, it would have just been a technicality where Lenin was saying, look, I'm in control of the government. Like what government? You know what I mean? The whole shit was just falling apart. What you have forming in that period is Soviets all over the country. Now, what in the hell is a Soviet? Because you've probably only heard the term Soviet used to refer to the Soviet Union, or maybe like an individual from the Soviet Union is Soviet. Well, actually, it was a thing that existed before the communists stole the idea. 
a Soviet is basically just a generic term for a workers' council. And it's something that folks within the Russian Empire would just do when shit hit the fan so bad that there was nobody in control. For instance, after the mutiny on the Potemkin, you could technically call the way that they ran the Potemkin a Soviet. It's basically just as simple as saying, like, we're having a meeting to decide what we're doing. In a certain sense, it's not even necessarily a communist idea. You could argue that it's an anarchist idea, but it's not even an idea at all. It's just like something that you do and something that had been done for a while whenever it was necessary. What we'll see in the Soviet Revolution or the Communist Revolution or the Bolshevik coup d'etat or whatever you want to call it is that the Communist Party or the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, whatever you want to call it, basically co-ops the idea of the Soviet and says, yes, all power to the Soviets, which basically means that like, well, we'll figure out how to control the Soviets and we'll just call everything Soviet since this Soviet concept is so popular. The idea, theoretically speaking, of a Soviet Union would be that you have all of these different labor unions. Each is a Soviet running its own workplace. You have all of these different councils in each town. Each is a Soviet running its own town. You have a Soviet running the, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, the municipality, the county, the state. And then you have a bigger Soviet running the whole council of all the Soviets. So in theory, it's the most democratic possible way to run a government. Now, in practice, of course, well, what it is, is it's this Bolshevik faction of the Communist Party, more or less manipulating to completely control everything with an iron fist. And by the time you get to Stalinism, it's basically just one man running everything and everybody else is just there for advising. But, you know, uh, Russia had a long tradition of that in the Tsar, so that must not have seemed odd to them. This is why you'll hear me as a professed Marxist anarchist talking about 1920s Soviet culture with these really bizarre rose-tinted lenses. It's not that horrible shit didn't happen, and it's not that the Bolsheviks didn't do horrible shit, but it is that something really wonderful and really amazing could have happened and actually was in the process of happening. You'll notice they call it, sort of similarly to how we call our country the United States, they named their new nation the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. There's nothing about Russia whatsoever in the title. And Russia is, in theory, just one Soviet Socialist Republic among many. And I think that hypothetically, if you were going for worldwide revolution, what Lenin would have wanted and what any true Marxist would have wanted would have been for there to have been Soviet socialist republics popping up all over the world. As I said, there were a couple of areas in Germany that attempted to do this, and they literally fought like the people who a couple decades later would be Nazis in the streets over this. But hypothetically, you could have imagined a worldwide revolution operating this way, where a union of Soviet socialist republics would have not been a stand-in for the Russian Empire, but actually a stand-in for a different version of the League of Nations or a different version of the United Nations that would be worker-run and anti-capitalist. Now, that didn't happen, sadly. And Russia was never just one component part of a union of Soviet socialist republics. Russia was always in the driver's seat, and that's kind of a shame. It would have been much truer to its supposed values if it had. Sometimes you'll catch a colorful Reagan quote. I don't know if it's true, first off, because it was Reagan, and he could have either been lying or misremembering because his brain was cheese. Reagan claimed that he had been in a union meeting with Dalton Trumbo, 
because of course, you know, Reagan was the president of the Screen Actors Guild and Dalton Trumbo was, you know, a major screenwriter. And Dalton Trumbo had said offhandedly, well, why the fuck do I care about the American constitution? I think the Soviet constitution's better. I haven't read the Soviet constitution, but I, I think that probably in premise, the way that it was written in terms of the letter of the law, I understand why Trumbo would have said such a thing. Now, that said, the, the American constitution looks pretty shitty on paper. Uh, the Soviet constitution was probably never followed to the letter anyway. But, you know, Trumbo also was speaking as someone who had suffered under a number of violations of the American constitution that had led to him being imprisoned and then exiled. So here we are in 1917. And the communists or the Soviets or whatever you want to call them are still actually naive enough to be like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll surrender now. Let's just take it right to the Germans. And you have this weird moment where Trotsky goes out to the literal front line of the Eastern Front and attempts to, I imagine with a bullhorn, I don't know how they did it back then, but <laughs> attempts to basically shout at the front line German soldiers to be like, stop fighting. You have no reason to fight with us. We're all workers. We, we can stop this right here, right now. Well, it doesn't work because it turns out the German army was really well trained. The Germans push really far into what was at the time Russian territory, and they end up forcing the Soviets to sign this very punitive Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. That means that there are then a number of different, what would later be called Soviet socialist republics, places like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and so on and so forth, that are sort of buffer states briefly. I think that Germany probably was interested in maybe taking them over, but they had other fish to fry because it was the tail end of the war. What ends up happening, though, is in the Russian Civil War, which immediately follows the First World War, each of those territories is reconquered by the Bolsheviks, by the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic, if you will, by whatever, how, however you want to call it. Basically, the Russian Empire reconstitutes itself in this really sloppy and awful civil war that runs between 1919 and 1922 that we'll talk about when we talk about Dr. Zhivago. And then you have the Soviet Union or the USSR or whatever you want to call it that manages to persist all the way up until 1991 until it falls to pieces and defeats the Nazis and sends the first human beings into outer space and takes the first photographs on the surface of Venus when they had merely been serfs a hundred years earlier. Let's get into Man with a Movie Camera and Battleship Potemkin. Both of these are really groundbreaking films in their various fields of history, drama, and documentary. Both of these are, in a certain sense, propaganda films, and they were exported to the rest of the world as a way of saying, look at how great the Soviet Union is. Look at what we've done. And rightfully so. I mean, they're great movies. Let's start with Battleship Potemkin. Anna, could you perhaps start by at least telling us whether you think that Battleship Potemkin or The Big Parade was a better film? That one's hard to judge because in my mind, I like some elements of Battleship Potemkin more. I think I like the construction of Battleship Potemkin more. I'm obviously, I'm interested in war, so I enjoy the story more in The Big Parade. So I'd say for me, it's a tie because I can't objectively judge one film over the other. What was your favorite moment of Battleship Potemkin? Mm, oh my gosh, this is really gross, but I love when they were all on... Is it going to be the freaking maggots? The maggots! Yeah. 
Yeah, they were all on the deck, and this micro penis officer is like, well, you can actually eat that. Like, it's, it's we'll very just, edible. We'll, we'll wash it out with brine, and then we'll boil it, and we'll put it in the borscht. Yeah, What's fine. the big deal? I, listen, I, why do you need salt when you have maggots? That's the flavoring in there. So that was my favorite part. Obviously, I was on their side, but clearly I was like, oh, my God, that's disgusting. You need to go get these... I was was very curious about how much of this was a true story and how much of this is just sheer propaganda. I mean, it's obviously a propaganda film. You can tell that in the staging of everything. But my understanding is that this is actually one of the more accurate parts of the story. And the only thing that they're leaving out was that they'd sort of been planning a mutiny all along. But this was actually the last straw. And that's totally realistic. And for me, it was way too specific to not be like, well, yeah, you're going to kill some dudes over a slab of meat. Like, why not? I mean, people have been killed over less, so. Well, I think it's worth noting also that this really jibes well with Marxist doctrine or as I would put it, common sense, which is that people are going to fight and die over their ability to survive. The most basic things in life are what motivate us, not like the high values that we claim to believe in. Of course, it's nice to believe in values, but what pushes you to your breaking point is like, what am I going to live and die over? And so the fact that it was about food does not surprise me at all. And also it makes sense that a communist filmmaker would emphasize it as something that is sort of part of the ideology. It is a materialist way of looking at the world. And so therefore it is material conditions that push these men to revolt. I have my favorite part and then the most interesting part for me. My favorite part was part three, Dead Man Calls Out, because it was a rallying cry and people just started flooding and flocking and they're like, let's shut these bitches down. But the most interesting part to me was the section titled The Odessa Staircase. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Where they shot the motherfucking kids. Yeah. Holy shit, I hate those bitches. And then the mom, like the mom was literally holding up her child. Yeah. And then they shot the mom. Bitches. Yeah. Bitches. And you've probably seen this parodied as well, or maybe not. I don't know. This is considered to be one of the great sequences in all of cinema to the extent that it's been analyzed to death, to the extent that it's been parodied to death in a billion movies and even comedy sketches. Anyone who studies film studies the Odessa Staircase sequence. And of course, like everything else in the film, it is based on true events, but it's also based on propaganda version of events. What you had, like I said, is was a situation that was quite a bit like what we saw in the summer of 2020. What you had was citywide rioting in opposition to the government, in opposition to the police and to the soldiers and so on and so forth. And so instead of dealing with the complicated intricacies of that, Eisenstein just basically stages this all on this one famous staircase. And they're now called the Potemkin Stairs. That's how famous this sequence is. I don't necessarily know all the intricacies of this. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, something didn't happen on the stairs. But I think that mainly the choice of the stairs was just because it makes it a much more dramatic set piece. It gives it a lot of angles. You have movement where people are running up and down. You have the Cossacks, of course, the sort of stormtroopers of the Tsarist state. Power dynamic. Yeah, mercilessly, mercilessly murdering people. 
true. It was true. They were just straight up shooting live fire into crowds of people. And that happened in Odessa. That happened in St. Petersburg. That happened all over the empire where there was an uprising. That's how they dealt with uprisings. That sequence where the woman is holding her baby, you get different translations sometimes. And sometimes there's an intertitle that says, my child is very ill right before she and the baby are shot. It's always bugged me. My child is very ill. Like, come on. Why would they not just write, my child is badly wounded? My child is motherfucking dying because of you bitches. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're going to have lots of translation issues in the next few weeks as we go through these. Russian is a tricky language. One thing that I, of course, need to mention, we have talked about hand tints on a number of these episodes. And so it's nice to see that come back around again. There are all these scenes where they're looking up at the flag above the battleship. It is supposed to be a red flag. And the red flag was a flag of socialist revolution. And then, of course, it later becomes the flag of communism. It's not, of course, red in the prints we see, or at least it wasn't red in the print that I saw. It's white. And what they would do is they would hand tint that red for a screening, at least if it was a premiere or something like that. It makes more sense to realize that, oh, they're looking at the red communist flag. I noticed it's, that a lot. Yeah, it's not a white flag of surrender. And also white was the color of Tsarist Russia. So you see before the mutiny, there's a white flag with a black X on it. That was the Tsarist naval ensign. And of course, a red flag would have showed up just black on black and white film. So they shot it as a white flag and then they tinted it red. Just the same way that they tinted that cross red on the ambulance in the big parade And in the sequence where the phantom is sort of creepily hanging out on the roof of the opera in Paris, they hand-tinted his cloak or his cape red. I'm not sure I know the difference between a cape and a cloak. A cape is kind of on the shoulders, but a cloak is more fully enveloping. Are you laughing at me, Anna? Out of all my friends, I swear to God, out of every single one of them, you're the only one that would know that. Yeah. Rachel, what's your take on Battleship Potemkin? What do you think is the important takeaway? Do you think it's a better film than The Big Parade or Phantom of the Opera? Phantom of the Opera is very near and dear to my heart, so I can't judge the other films fairly. But um, the original silent version? But the, You watched I, the bizarre Frankenstein sound reconstruction, too, which must have been a monstrosity. I tied him with the 2004 musical. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you can't judge things objectively. Okay. But I really like it, especially as I like to think that I'm progressive. I like the rallying cry and the joining together. You don't even bother trying to judge it objectively. (laughs) That's okay. That's how most people approach the world. But I like the message behind it. And I think it is a good film. It has great imagery and great music. And the use of tinting is great and powerful. And it really evokes a lot of emotions. And it's definitely propaganda. And I think not putting our own personal emotions into it, discussing it with our own emotions as a piece of propaganda is doing it a little bit of a disservice, maybe. Fair enough, fair enough. I'd be lying if I didn't say that it, you know, stirred the cockles of my hearts. But (laughs) all three of them. 
but I think it's just a better movie in general than most movies that are being made in this era. Yeah. Eisenstein has found just a cleaner way to do storytelling, and he writes whole books on montage theory, basically explaining how, well, you cut to this, and then you cut to that, and then you cut to the other thing, or thinking about how the different angles can come together to make a dramatic image. That's why he picks a staircase, so it has that dramatic diagonal. He just knows what he's doing in a way that the Hollywood directors don't know. And in a way that even the German expressionists that we've seen, they sort of had some interesting ideas. They were doing some interesting stuff. But honestly, I think that he's just blowing them away with this. It's a really tight storyline. The big parade is a solid two-hour chunk of lead. You don't even get to the war for a full hour. Battleship Potemkin starts more or less the night before the mutiny. He knows how to just pick out those specific scenes that you need to lead all the way up to the thing that's going to happen and to just focus on the important parts. It looks like a much more modern film that way. It looks much more like what we expect film storytelling to look like. I think he blows D.W. Griffith out of the water too. I mean, his montage technique is just so much more sophisticated. I know we had talked earlier in previous seasons about how 20s are just trying to figure out what film is. And the Russians have blown it out of the water. They're ahead of their time, really. Yeah, that has to do with living in a revolutionary culture. They're living in a culture where it's like, well, let's do new things. Let's find new ways of doing a thing. And what we see in both Germany and in America is as much as people want to do a new thing, because they're shackled by capital, there's always somebody in back of them to be like, no, don't do it that way. It's too risky. And so all the products that come out, when we see this both in Weimar cinema and in early Hollywood, are these sort of weird bastardizations where you can see that somebody was trying to push something in a weird direction, but then it got kind of pulled back and done only halfway. And when you hand the tools of production to the actual creators, in this case, the directors, the actors, the cinematographers, as we'll see in Man with the Movie Camera, and you say, go do it, they do it and they create something that's a completely new art form. And when we get into Mayakovsky, we'll talk a little bit about censorship regimes. And it is notable that in this era, in the 1920s, there is a sort of peak level of freedom for Soviet revolutionary filmmakers. This early Soviet culture is really dynamic and just really wild in the things that you can do and things that don't even seem to us to be very wild because they've just become the way that you do the thing. In their time, they were experimental. If you enjoy The Pointless Century, you've probably asked yourself, how do these rat bastards pay for this shit? When we started a year ago during the pandemic, we literally weren't paying for anything. And now we certainly can't afford the licensing of a classic 90s deep cut like this. But we are funded partially and currently by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Though given that I'm a visiting assistant professor, we have no idea how long that'll continue for. We're funded for the summer at present, but we're going to need your donations to continue forward. Join our Patreon! Do you have any thoughts on characterization in the film? I noticed with a lot of people in Odessa, 
A lot of people were wearing glasses, like the really short dude on the ship. What was your fascination with these glasses, though? I don't know, but like <laughs> I noticed with a lot of shots, there was a higher percentage of the close-up of people with glasses as compared to not with glasses, which is not normal. But it's weird because people that were wearing glasses were part of the revolutionaries on the steps of Odessa. But it was weird to me because I noticed that glasses thing, the general population had glasses, but then the captain or whatever didn't. It may just be me overanalyzing. I don't really know. I think it might be as simple as in a city like Odessa, you're going to have more people who are doing sort of jobs that might involve reading. If you're talking about a revolt in the countryside, obviously none of those peasants are going to wear glasses because even if they have bad vision, it never comes up. True. But it might just be a matter of it being an urban uprising that you're going to have more people with glasses. I don't know. I don't know if it's a symbolic thing or if it's merely that people, if they, you know, needed glasses, they wore their glasses. I, I don't really know the way that they did that. I'm probably overanalyzing. I, I don't think that there's such a thing, strictly speaking, as overanalyzing, but I never thought about it. I don't think that you're overanalyzing this because especially when you're taught to read things and read into things, then it's reasonable to assume that you'd catch that detail, even if it is that small. It might be a moment to talk about what a revolution means for the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. What's the acronym for that? Yeah, Russian Social... I think it's RSDLP. The RSDLP, which of course later becomes the CPSU. You have a lot of acronym parties in this period in Europe. Not to go on a weird tangent, but to go on a weird tangent, this is how you get the Nazi party, right? All the parties were these weird-ass alphabet soup of acronyms. These days, it's only the weirdo Trotskyite and Maoist and Leninist sects that are still using these weird acronyms. I think they might do them in Europe every once in a while. Let's talk about, well, what is Marxist-Leninism? And what is the problem of trying to have a Marxist revolution in a largely agrarian society? Well, the RSDLP is attempting to modify Marxist theory to a situation that is not really ready for a Marxist revolution. If you have a more or less feudalist society, like you have in turn of the century Russia, that's still struggling to drag itself into the industrial era, mm-hmm. how many revolutions are you going to have to do before you can get to communism? Way too fucking many. <laughs> What's the first revolution? 1905. No, no, no. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. We're asking a theoretical question here. <laughs> this is why it doesn't work, because it's all theory. But, you know, theoretically, the first thing that you'd have to do would be to overthrow the... The motherfuckers. The aristocracy. There we go. Yeah. If you have a largely feudalist, almost medieval society like you have in Tsarist Russia, all the way up until 1917, more or less, first you have to overthrow the aristocracy so the bourgeoisie can take power. The Marxist philosophy is that in that first revolution, like in the French Revolution or like in the American Revolution, what you have is the bourgeoisie more or less con the working class into going along with them to overthrow the aristocracy. They say, oh, well, we're going to do everything democratically or as a republic or whatever, like the going philosophy of the era is. They overthrow the aristocracy and then everybody moves up one level, then, then the bourgeoisie control everything. And then... 
Marx says, again, this is all theoretical, which is exactly the problem. <laughs> the proletariat, the true working class, and that is an urban working class, not like peasants, but like people in fucking factories and shit, are going to overthrow the bourgeoisie and take control, and that's when you have communism. Simplified, but you get the idea. So you could see how Russia would be the worst possible nation in which to attempt to do a communist revolution. This is just a guess. But this might be why you see people with glasses. This might be why we're focusing on revolutions in the city, like Odessa here. We're talking about people who are in urban situations, a proletarian class, so to speak. So the question of the peasants ends up being a whole thing during the Russian Civil War. Because the peasants are in some ways very conservative, even though their interests would presumably be with some sort of a revolution. They may not be really communist, so to speak, though. And so that ends up being an issue. In some areas, you have peasants who are anarchists, most famously in Ukraine. So Ukraine had a big anarchist contingent during the Civil War, their most famous leader being Nestor Makhno. And then you had also a number of factions of, sometimes they were called Greens during the Russian Civil War, who were peasant counter-revolutionaries of one sort or other. The long and short of it is that the RSDLP is really an urban party. It is a working class party, and it is a party that is people who work in factories and also soldiers and sailors. I think it's really interesting, the question of what do you get of a character in a Soviet movie? If you have a movie that's supposed to be presenting an ideology of the group, which I think is kind of the simple way of putting it, I think it really oversimplifies. And once again, when we get to our dear friend Mayakovsky, we'll see how interesting it is to try and be a collectivist if you're also a weirdo individualist at the same time. But do you remember characters from this movie? Like there's the short little dude and then there's the captain that slaps the dude in there and then there's the mom and the kid and then there's the other mom with the thriller baby. Uh I mean, granted, I did watch it today, but... And those people are in there for like one scene, right? Yeah. We basically have Chuck is the only person who gets a name. Yeah, the dude that dies. Yeah. If I had to answer this question, that would be my answer is that I remember him more than anyone, not because he had a name. And obviously, you know, he was a symbol for, you know, the uprising of Odessa. But other than that, I just remember his body laying out there for days, like the same slab of meat that started this whole thing. Wow. Yeah. I love that. And this was in an intertitle. And he who was first to sound the cry of rebellion was the first to fall at the executioner's hand. Yeah. Also, Anna, your comparison to the slab of meat laying out, like, I knew it in my mind, but you saying it out loud, like... (laughs) Well, I just see it as a direct connection, you know, in the best possible way. That scene is so beautiful, too. They show him laying out, and then they cut to almost like a point of view shot from his perspective. Out the tent and into the harbor. And then we see these sort of ships gliding around in the harbor in the mist. That's incredibly beautiful. And it's, I don't know, it's wild. Why is it so much to ask for just like, give me a beautiful shot, you know? 
There's so much of that missing from the big parade or from the Phantom of the Opera or even from those Weimar films. There are definitely shots in those Weimar films where people are like, well, let's get a cool shot, but very rarely just a beautiful shot. So then how would you define a beautiful shot? In this case, it's something that I would call almost impressionist. Obviously, that's not what it would have to be, but this is to describe this particular shot or these particular shots. They're like a Turner painting. Like I said, these ships ghosting around in the harbor. I have one more note on the shot because I'm very interested in the body of, I'll just call him V. I'm not going to try to pronounce his name. (laughs) Okay. So I don't know if I remember this right, but isn't there a point of view shot when he is lying on the ground and then everyone surrounds him? It's from his perspective as a dead man, or am I just imagining that? Did I remember that wrong? I could be. I don't remember that shot in particular. If I'm remembering it wrong, either way, though, the concept... He was in the tent. Yeah, yeah, in the tent. And that might be the one that you're talking about. So maybe you were remembering the same one. But I read it differently. I read it as, okay, if you're shooting this this way against a supposedly beautiful background but it's also shot in a weird way because it's not even at eye level for me it's almost a point of view shot you know looking upwards so then therefore his character is diminished and then therefore that also speaks to the revolution that is supposedly in progress or is starting and it speaks to that because from this point of view we are with him we almost feel like we're right next to him with all of the other people. And it's not us looking down, minimizing his power. It is him looking up to the other people. And that to me says, I may only be one man, but God, can I at least hope for more than what you've given me? More than what Tsarist Russia and all of these combined powers have pushed down on me. And now they're looking down on me, but now is my time to correct that. That's my reading. Yeah, it's interesting to get that much just from a different (laughs) angle of a shot. What you're basically getting into is that he is more than a piece of meat. What you're basically getting into is that there is some interest in his own experience and in his own dreams and in his own hopes for the future. Mm -hmm. And even, even in something like a soul almost. Yeah, in his soul, but the way that it's shot, it's just like, yeah, these experiences may matter, but to who? They matter to the people of Odessa, but not the larger system. Also looking into that shot more, they're looking down and looking up at him. They're looking down on him, and he's looking up to them to continue what he did. And they're looking down on him to learn from his mistakes and then go forward and go upwards from where he went. Like in the literal sense, he's looking up to them to continue what he was trying to do. But in the figurative sense, it's switched. They're looking up to him to see what to do next and learn from him and how they can improve their lives. Okay, I'll take it. I'm not going to throw any reading out. I think that a lot of the shots are selected with an intent to what is going to be most dramatic and most effective. And I do think that we can draw conclusions that might go beyond that. but. Overanalyze. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with overanalyzing. I just think that it's important to keep in mind the sort of basic nuts and bolts of these things. 
Well, there was also like a heavy religious emphasis, like the knocking with the cross. And then when Vakulin Chuck dies, he's thrown overboard, like he's hanging loose and open and stuff. And that's very similar to the 12 signs of the cross that he's hanging in the rigging, isn't he? Is that? Yeah, he's hanging in the rigging. And that was so similar to Christ to me. And then he's laid out for the whole public to see. And that's what starts that revolution. Supposedly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. And I think that because, you know, I'm inclined to just be aware of how anti-clerical this revolution is. Like I said, the power of the Orthodox Church was really just smushed down onto the czarism and the aristocracy and the capitalistic class. It was all just mashed into one big thing that was overthrown in the revolution. That's why you have this Orthodox priest pounding the cross into his fist like he's going to beat you with the cross. But, but there were like also sound effects for when he did pound the cross on yeah. his hand. Yeah. And it was also compared to the knife where God is going to punish you. No, it's not about God is going to punish you. God doesn't exist. It's about the church is going to punish you if you defy us. And we must overthrow the church in the same way that we must overthrow the captain, in the way that we must overthrow the aristocracy, in the way we must overthrow capitalism. That's the way that I've always understood it. Now, I think you're right then in doing so, Vakulin Chuck does become a sort of substitute Christ figure, but you have to take that as a secularization of that Christ imagery. Something that, of course, any Russian would be familiar with, or in this case, Ukrainian, I suppose. Bear in mind, Odessa is in Ukraine. Did y'all also notice that there was the mini and then the bigger revolution? What do you mean by that? But they were like exactly the same. Like the meat caused the revolution on the ship. The meat on the ship led to the other meat, which was the Kulinchuk. And then that led to the citywide revolution. This is base materialism, my favorite kind. That's good. But they weren't going to eat him. They were going to eat his ideology, his I mean, his if, they, if they did eat him, then that would truly make him a Christ figure. All right, let's talk about Man with the Movie Camera. It's sort of a, a meta movie, if you will, almost, right? I mean, this is a movie about movie making, right? Yeah. yeah. It is supposedly a documentary. It's Go ahead. so avant-garde. It is truly avant-garde. It's also wonderful in a very simple sense of that it just shows what life in the early Soviet Union was like. But then also it's doing all this weird avant-garde stuff on top of that. What were we interested in talking about here? I was so captivated by it. When I was done watching it, I thought about when I was a kid. There was this one video when I was an infant, and it was baby Mozart, baby Beethoven. I don't know. But it was like classic music with fun sounds and little quacks or squeaks or whatever. And then it had these interesting things for kids to watch. And apparently when I watched it as an infant, that was the only time that I was silent and I stayed completely still. And that's what I felt like watching this. I couldn't do anything (laughs) other than watch it. Okay. (laughs) What did you guys think of this view into the early Soviet world? I mean, perhaps obviously there are certain aspects of this that are kind of romanticizing life in the Soviet Union and maybe even casting forward to what life will be like in the future. But at the same time, most of it is basically just going out and shooting in Kiev, in Moscow and in Odessa and then sort of stitching it together. What were you expecting that the Soviet Union would look like? And did this surprise you or not? There's a sort of an aspect of everyday life to this. I'll just say it. I liked this movie actually more than Battleship Potemkin. And there's a few reasons why. You know, from the outset, I thought I'd hate it. 
Because, I don't know, I've had kind of a mixed reaction to the silent... Well, it's not silent. You know what I'm talking about. The kind of more artsy films that we've watched in the past. I've kind of had a mixed reaction to those. But I actually really liked this. Not only for, you know, the different camera techniques that I was watching for. I couldn't keep track of all of them, obviously. But there would be moments where I'd be like, Oh, yes, you know, Dutch. Freeze frame. Double and just going through and trying to be more aware of those. But the main reason, and back to your question of why I really appreciate this film, is that I'm sure people from their first viewing of this might say that, okay, it's just random different shots of what the Soviet Union is. But actually, it's not. And there's a very clear progression here between not only the shots and what they go through, you know, or what the Soviets or people in this place go through during their day. So you could analyze that. I mean, obviously the opening shot they're going through and starting their day, and then you get into the commerce section of the day, and then you get into recreation and sports towards the end. So I think at least every section for me, there's a narrative within the narrative and then there's also towards the end there's different special themes within the sections the music obviously changes to match the mood or the excitement or you know the blaseness of what's being presented too so then i noticed that that was continually changing that's overanalyzing too but that's why i liked this movie i'm not sure if it's possible to overanalyze this one I think that this one has some deep shit going on in there. Mm -hmm. I just stumbled over a hilarious quote from Eisenstein. Eisenstein slagging Vertov, calling this movie pointless camera hooliganism. (laughs) Who the fuck says hooliganism? I mean, he didn't say hooliganism. He said something in Russian that got retranslated as hooliganism. Oh. I mean, unless he was, I don't know, dissing him in whatever other language they might have spoken. Eisenstein would have been born in Livonia, what now would have been parts of Latvia or Estonia. Shiga Vertov would have been born in what is now actually part of Poland, but within the Russian Empire. He may have spoken Yiddish as well as Russian, for all I know. These things aren't really clear to me, but that's just a long-winded way of saying like a lot of these people are multilingual. And of course, they all end up speaking Russian in the Russian Empire and then in the Soviet Union. But I've talked about this some already, that there's like a multi-ethnic aspect to the Soviet Union that we sometimes forget about because we think of it as, "Uh, in Soviet Russia, camera shoots you. No, 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 no. You you fucked it up. In Soviet Russia, road forks you. (laughs) I don't think that this can be overanalyzed. I think that it's weird enough that there's always something going on there. In your summary of the film, Anna, you had talked about, you know, it going through the different parts of the day, but you oddly left out the beginning part, which is this whole sequence of people going into the movie theater and the seats open up for everybody and everybody sits down. And you have this wonderful moment where everybody's waiting. The musicians are sitting there with their instruments ready to start playing and it's just tick, 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 tick tick and then we see the camera start to project and they start playing and it's i don't know it's really beautiful and suspenseful and silly all at the same time i don't know it's wonderful i actually screened at least 
I don't know, the first third of this or whatever to my children yesterday. And Megan was like, what are they watching in there? I was like, oh, it's this old Soviet documentary. And she was like, oh, great. <laughs> they enjoyed it. They were very sweet about it. They were so patient with me. They were like, it was a little bit boring. <laughs> but it was a little bit interesting, too. Oh, <laughs> But Vertov is doing all of these weird things with the system of film. Like I said, it's sort of a meta film. He's showing us the way that we watch a movie. And he's also showing us the way that a movie is put together. And he's also showing the way that the movie is filmed within a movie. Exactly. Because in multiple shots, you see actually the man with the movie camera. There's this great sequence where he's set up on a motor car, as one will call it, driving alongside the people who are in a horse and buggy that are driving, and he's shooting them, but we're watching him. That means there's a third car next to it that must be shooting him, right? It's just kind of great. And then as they're clippity-clopping along, and of course the music's going... Then it stops and it freezes and we see the horse frozen in mid-motion. And then we go to the cutting room where a woman, and it's always women, which is really cool. And I think it's another aspect of Soviet propaganda ideology, honestly. We then see the woman who makes the movie cutting the different strips of film together and showing us this is for a lot of people who don't know anything about movies and haven't seen a whole lot of movies before, right? Think of just your average Russian or your average Soviet worker who then get to see like well here the frame is still and then this worker looks at this particular set of frames she selects them she rolls them onto the film she glues them in place and then we see oh they come alive and here is a child laughing and here's a woman talking to us and so on and so forth it's really beautiful how he deconstructs the whole filmmaking process to show you this is how we do it And then toward the end, after we go through the whole day in the life of the city, so to speak, the camera comes out in front of the people. It's this hilarious stop motion sequence. And there's a lot of sense of humor to this. You know, people are sitting in the theater still. The camera comes out and it bows to them and it shows them all of its functions. Like, look, I've got a crank here and I can bend in this way and here are my legs. It's really funny. But what it's also doing is it's showing the average Soviet worker how to operate a camera and how to cut film together. It's really weird, but it is radically democratic in that it's saying you can do this also. It is so far ahead of its time, I would venture to say, it's so far ahead of its time that the dream of filmmaking in this movie doesn't really come into being until you get the handheld Super 8, or even really maybe until our day now, or you have the digital camera in your pocket. And he's imagining a world where anybody can make a movie. You can make propaganda. You can make propaganda. We all make propaganda. Well, if you're imagining a world that is a true dictatorship of the proletariat, then the true propaganda would be from the bottom up, like a democratic process. Everybody shows us their world. Our product is shared and it is beautiful and we can all do it. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel, what do you think? I liked the attention to eyes and dolls. I mean, I don't know if I liked it, but it was definitely something that kept popping up. Yeah. And I don't quite understand it. The dolls especially. Well, he does a lot of these weird match cuts 
So a match cut would be where you're matching something up with something that's similar to it. So where you have the woman or the main character, if you will, if there is a main character, opening her eyes in the morning. She's waking up and she's blinking her eyes. And then you have the blinds of the room flapping open and shut. And then you have the camera aperture going open and shut. Those are match cuts. And so he's doing something that's like drawing our attention to the way that we look at things. That's letting us think about how, well, cinema is really just light flowing into the eye of the camera like it flows into our own eyes. I probably should have paid more attention, but I wonder if he does that with color or setting too, because obviously it can be done in multiple ways, but I wasn't paying enough attention to that. Well, because it's a sort of thematically plotted movie, there's not like a real plot, but there is a sort of set of themes that it moves through. You could say the whole movie is match cuts. Now we're in the trolley segment. We're going to cut to another trolley here. Now we're in the sports segment. And so we're going to cut from one sport to an export. So thematically, yes, you're right. It is kind of all match cuts. The long and short of what we're seeing here then is a different notion of the montage than what Eisenstein is doing. In Eisenstein, we see a more traditional use of the montage where you have those different point of view shots for like, okay, well, here are the people coming to the tent. We see them from inside the tent and then they come into the tent and we see them looking at the body and we are suddenly from the point of view of the body looking up and we're looking past the feet and we're looking into the harbor and now we're in the harbor. Or we're looking up the staircase of the soldiers coming down us. We're looking down the staircase of the peasants running away. We're looking back up the staircase and here the soldiers are and now we're following the baby carriage in a long tracking shot following bumping 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 down the staircase right they're very traditional very sensible very realist plot oriented cuts what vertov is doing is a much more avant-garde style of montage where it's concept to concept whether that's a match cut here's an idea that's similar to this idea that here's something that looks like this other thing or whether it's a jump cut here's something that's totally different from this other thing. And I bet you didn't expect that I'd cut to this. It's much more conceptual. It's much more abstract. Though you do still get some of those shot reverse shot montages, those types of sequences as well. And you also get the freeze frames, you know, all so on and so forth. I think that it is a propaganda film, but it is amazing how well the public transportation system (laughs) of Vertov's composite city runs compared to what anybody who's ever tried to ride public transit in the United States (laughs) would have experienced, where it's like, well, yeah, of course, everybody rides the trolley. So here's the trolley, and then you get on the trolley, and there it is. And it's one trolley after the next, after the next, after the next, you know? No big deal. Trains, yo. And here we are in our stupid, stupid cars. I'm honestly shocked that out of everything to talk about with these, your final thoughts are on the transportation system. The point is that 90 years ago, war-ravaged, cobbled-together workers' republic was able to field a, a better trolley system than any city in the United States today. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a pretty significant thing. I mean, even granted that this is a bit idealized, but they were running those trolleys because people didn't have cars. The question of any society, and certainly the question of a workers' republic, is the matter of what things are individual versus what things are collective. For instance, it makes sense for transit to be collective. It makes sense for everybody to get on the trolleys. That is, I suppose, assuming you don't have a massive pandemic ravaging the land. 
It also makes sense for film to be collective in the film is something that people do in groups. And yet we also have inklings of an individualistic notion of the film here too. We have inklings of the idea that you too can learn to operate this camera and take part in this. And that's kind of cool. It's only once we get 90 years into the future to digital camera technology where we have the ability for one person themselves as an individual to be a photographer, editor, and distributor of a film. You can shoot a film on your phone and send it to anyone you know. And yet in Vertov's day, this was, and still is on the high level, like the epitome of collective production. And so then how absurd it is for us to talk about Zhiga Vertov's film or Sergei Eisenstein's film. All of these are collective products, just as the Hollywood products are. And the only difference is that we do have these unique artistic visions of the individual. And so that tension is not necessarily a contradiction in the way that the bootlicking apologists would tell us. It's actually in that tension that we get a variety of creative options that are available to us. And we'll see this more in Mayakovsky, where Mayakovsky wants to be a poet of the people, and yet he is an individual and a weird individual at that with weird ideas about the world speaking from his perspective. And so similarly, like Giga Veritov or Sergei Eisenstein, they are two individuals, and yet they're trying to show us something of the collective of their world. And that tension is something that we see in, honestly, a lot of modernist texts. We see it even in the American modernisms of John Dos Passos and folks like that. When we get to Mayakovsky's Cloud in Pants, that there is the missing link between futurism and the Soviet avant-garde. It's that I'm going to fucking offend you and also here are my own weird internal perversions that are fucking with my skull, but also here's my vision of a revolution for the future. And it's not a tension that's ever resolved, it's just something that produces. It is a productive tension. You've been listening to Professor Frank Fucile and research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. The song on today's episode is The Sciences on Sleep's album, The Sciences. information on the Russian Revolution, listen to the History of the 20th Century podcast and the Revolutions podcast. Join us in two weeks as we consider the other side of this international culture war, when Hollywood builds a film out of Boris Pasternak's epic novel, Dr. Zhivago. You can support The Pointless Century at patreon.com slash thepointlesscentury. Support levels include Navel Gazer for $1.11 per month, as a Shoe Gazer for $4.20 per month, 
and Void Gazer for $19.17 per month. Make sure to troll us on Twitter at Pointless Scent and follow us on Instagram at The Pointless Century. And if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the links in the description for both our Tea Public merch and our Patreon. We'll see you next time with another episode of The Pointless Century.